Auden Schendler, the Vice President of Sustainability at Aspen Skiing Company. Auden, thanks for joining me today. Hey, my pleasure. Over the past 25 years, there's been a shift in your understanding of corporate social responsibility. In the early days of CSR, it was seen as a solution to climate change, but now you believe that in some ways it has exacerbated the problem. Could you talk us through the change in your approach to CSR and how you've thought about it? Yeah, so I came out of the nonprofit sector, and the thesis was that business was the only entity that was big enough, nimble enough, and motivated enough by profit to meaningfully move the needle on the climate problem. Or you can call climate sustainability, it's the same thing. You got to solve climate to be sustainable. And so I kind of took that ball and ran with it into the corporate sector where I am at Aspen Skiing Company. And the first thing I did was I attempted the easiest thing in corporate sustainability, which was to change light bulbs. I could launch into my half hour story of how hard it was to do the easiest thing in sustainability, but I'll just say it was very difficult. And the reason it's easy is lighting retrofits typically pay back at anywhere from 50% to like 100%. In some cases, the second you screw the bulb in, you've got your payback. The new LEDs are so efficient. But I couldn't even do that. We eventually got it done, but it was much, much, much more difficult than I had been taught. I had been taught that smart business people would not turn down a return on investment opportunity that was sizable. And the reality of the world, as you know, is that there are other factors at play. You might make a lot of money changing a light bulb, but much more by selling a bottle of wine. You may choose to spend your money on hotel rooms instead of garage lighting if you have a limited bucket of money. So what that led me to think was, I don't think we're going to get there. I don't think business is going to be a key part of the climate solution because it's just not enough. And then over time, as I did this work, I said, you know what? It's not that it's not enough. It's that it's actually distracting us from what really matters, which means wielding power and using business as a policy tool to drive big scale change. And then I thought, so this is 20 years of evolution condensed into a few minutes. Then I thought, well, actually, it's not just a distraction. It's a dodge. And What I mean by that is that corporations don't want typically to stick their necks out on policy and on controversial issues. They get attacked and it distracts from their core mission, which is making stuff or selling a service or product. So they're actually using things like carbon footprint reduction, lighting retrofits, green buildings as a way to avoid the hard work. I thought, well, that's no good. And then I had the final kind of shoe dropped in this intellectual conversation I was having with myself. And this actually happened while riding my bike. And I was thinking about the proponents of this movement, which is sustainable business. It's good for the environment. It's good for all of us. Let's do it. And I thought, what would the fossil fuel industry, right? The architects of the carbon economy, that are responsible for climate change and for the fact that we have a completely fossil-powered economy and fossil fuel-owned government, what would they want us to do? 
And the answer I came up with that almost made me fall off my bike was exactly what we're doing. In other words, our work is complicit with the fossil fuel industry's interest because what they want us to do is take blame for the problem ourselves to address it in small ball ways that don't affect them. What they don't want us to do is use our massive power and influence as a business with huge and influential customer base. They don't want us to do things like start a social movement, to protest their activities, to engage their board, to engage political people, to change policy around the use of fossil fuels. We weren't doing any of that. So in some ways, I've argued we're complicit. It seems like you have your shifting attitude towards the role of business or what it looks like for a business to be a force for good. Within the CSR community, it seems like you're on the leading edge of that. How would you say the response has been to that piece of what you just said? This is tough because the reality is 99% of corporate sustainability people are doing operational change. That's what they've trained for. That's what they understand. So there's a very small group of people who understand and agree with what I'm talking about. The rest basically say, yeah, we are getting serious. We're using science-based carbon targets, which is a term that basically says we're going to apply science to our business's carbon footprint so that we make reductions that meet the scale of the global problem. And it looks very serious, and it's defended by major NGOs and leaders in the field. And it's, it's bullshit, because basically it's like saying, hey, you're in a shipwreck and you're drowning. What portion of the ocean should you drink to save your friends who are around you? In other words, if what society has to do is cut emissions of carbon dioxide 100% by 2060, you having a target of 30% or 40% or 70% doesn't matter. What matters is whether you can get the rest of the world to change. That's how you be part of the solution. It's not just accepting blame and reducing X percent. Yeah. So if even within the group of people who care deeply about addressing climate change, there's such little focus on these bigger systemic issues, how do you bring more people to the position you're at? What does that look like? I think we're actually in the middle of that transition. And yesterday's news is a good example. So yesterday, or it was the day before, Exxon Mobil basically suffered a coup d'etat on the board where a teeny hedge fund in California named Engine Number no. 1, which owns something like 0.6% of their shares, fronted two or three climate-friendly candidates for the board and won at least two of those seats. I'm not sure what happened to the third seat. Now, who came in and backed this? BlackRock, the world's largest investment equity firm, run by Larry Fink, who's made profoundly ambitious and aggressive statements on the need for climate action, but never really done material things to achieve that. Now he has. BlackRock backed those candidates as well. So you saw simultaneously this coup at the board of Exxon, which should tell Exxon, 
hey, it's not enough to do greenwashing ads on MSNBC about biofuels. It's not enough to say we're cutting our carbon footprint. It's not enough to invest less than 1% of your total forward investment into renewable energy whilst expanding fossil fuel development. Your organization is going to be changed for you. So the definition of corporate sustainability has got to change. It's happening by force. It's very gratifying to see this. Now, the thing that happened the same day in the Netherlands, Shell lost a lawsuit and is being forced to do more to cut its carbon footprint. Well, this is what I'm talking about. And so if you're a business, you should be seeing these things and start saying, even if we don't want to become more activist and to change, we're going to be forced to. Yeah. You mentioned ExxonMobil's ads on MSNBC, which I think opens up another piece of that article that you recently wrote in the Stanford Social Innovation Review, the disconnect between words and actions. Yeah, I mean, one of the stark challenges that has been brought up repeatedly by Sheldon Whitehouse, the senator from Rhode Island, is that you have leading corporations making a ton of noise on climate and doing pretty significant action around buying renewable power. So we're talking about Apple, Google, Facebook, Microsoft. And then when you say, okay, that's great, is that going to solve the climate problem? No, because it's not big enough. It's important. But what would really matter is if Microsoft, Apple, Google, and Amazon, instead of spending money on renewable energy investments, if they used their K Street lobbyists to prioritize climate action, and if they were public about it in the newspapers. If you dig in, Tim Cook has talked about climate, but it's always in the context of what Apple's done around its own operations. Now, remember, that's complicity with the fossil fuel industry. And so what White House has pointed out, and actually now a new group called Climate Voice, which is run by a guy named Bill Wheel, who was the sustainability guy at both Google and Facebook, they're saying, show us how much money you're spending on climate lobbying. And the number's about 4% of that. The way businesses operated is they'll do a once annual trip to DC where they publicly lobby on climate, but they typically are lobbying for a bill. And if you're doing that, the Senator can say, I don't like that bill, but thanks for talking to me. But if you say, we're not gonna vote for you and we're gonna make a public stink if you don't get more progressive on climate, that's a different argument. So these organizations have to actually use their lobbying power to push on this. And the reason they don't is it's pretty simple. They need other stuff from Republicans. And if you ask for say trade policy support, you don't wanna then alienate them by opposing them on climate. There's a great example of this playing out real time in Colorado. So we have a trade group called Colorado Ski Country USA. They're our trade group. We pay them a lot of money. And we and the board have said climate should be a priority. Well, the governor of Colorado was very helpful during COVID. Now there's a climate bill that's profound, supported by all the environmental community that he's gonna veto. And we've said, Colorado Ski Country Trade Group, you need to take a position on this. And they said, we're not doing that because he was so good to us on COVID. Yeah. How do you think you break through those gridlocks? 
you see it at a state level, you see it at a national level. Everyone wants to have access to both sides. And so they're afraid to stick their neck out. Do you think that corporations are actually willing or even structured in a way that it's possible for them to start making climate a bigger priority at the cost or risk of other pieces of their business or policy? Yeah, I mean, I also think this is playing out now as well. So in Georgia, you saw the risk of not leading. I used to argue there used to be risk to taking a position on climate. And now I think there's risk in not having a position. A surrogate for this conversation is what happened in Georgia around the repressive law, the voter restriction law, that as an example, Coke and what was it? Southwest, I think. Delta? Oh, maybe Delta. In any case, these two businesses knew it was happening. They didn't oppose it. And then after it was passed, they opposed it. That's duplicity, right? They got what they wanted, which is more Republican governance. And then they came out opposing it. Well, that's a, that's a joke. People aren't falling for that. So basically, they're learning that not having a progressive position is going to hurt them. And it's going to hurt them way more than their senators or congresspeople can impact them. It's their social license. You know, it's whether people like that company. It's brand. And so I think that we're getting past this. By the way, this isn't that complicated, right? Like our trade group could say, Governor Polis, you were awesome on COVID. Of course, a lot of that stuff you did was just to keep the economy going, and we really appreciate it. Climate's going to put us out of business worse than COVID did. So we really have to support this bill. We know you don't support it. We're going to take this. I'm sorry. Right? Like, this is just like emotional intelligence. Yep. Yep. So it seems like we're entering a moment where support for climate policy, for more progressive policies, is becoming part of what you would call a business's social license. At the same time, you're seeing still Apple not talking about some of the lobbying that it's doing and Tim Cook having his statements buried behind other topics. You've mentioned in the past Salesforce having a pretty significant arm that addresses progressive issues that isn't being publicized. Is it because they're still afraid to stick their neck out? When does that become front and center? I mean, part of my thesis... I guess, is that it, it doesn't because of the nature of these corporations. If you look at who's leading and who's led, it's all either privately held corporations or corporations with visionary leadership that are unicorns. Salesforce is an example of that. They really do get the value of lobbying and the need to talk about it. They're changing as we speak in terms of prioritizing that over operational greening. Though if you look at their sustainability report, it looks just like everyone else's in terms of operational greening. You've got Patagonia, you've got a Unilever. Patagonia, of course, is privately held and there's no one like Yvonne Chouinard in the world. Paul Pullman at Unilever got it, but he was like the only guy who got it. So I think corporations, they're going to be very slow to change. And so when you have this conversation, it almost becomes, hey, look, we're going to take the willing, the businesses that are willing, but we need to call out those that are not. What I've said repeatedly over the last decade is, if you're calling yourself a green company and your CEO hasn't made a very visible public statement on the need for strong government policy on climate, 
you're just not a green corporation. How optimistic are you about policy that would meaningfully shift the way that corporations are held to account on climate issues? And I ask because it feels like there's still an attitude that there's going to be an opt-in movement where companies are going to voluntarily police their externalities, which we've seen time and time and time again just doesn't work. What gets us over the hump on policy? Well, I mean, look, that's a question about whether the American experiment succeeds, that we're in a democracy crisis right now, and it's going to play out if we continue to have a significant portion of our elected representatives denying facts and reality and basically staying in power by reducing voting, then we're not going to succeed. But Biden is showing what's possible through the regulatory process. And some of the things he's doing are significant and profound, like uh, pause on public lands drilling, which is 25% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, like ratcheting down methane restrictions, like infrastructure support, uh, expanding renewable energy. So if you get the ability to govern based on science and facts, that may require taking money out of politics, which is another conversation. But if you can get that little bit of edge, there's all kinds of policy that even the business community would support that would accelerate this change. But this is about can Americans govern as a republic? And so, you know, when you dig in on climate and you say, how are we going to solve this? You realize it's a democracy issue and it's a money and politics issue. And so some leading philanthropists and thinkers on this, like George Soros, have said, I'm not going to work on climate anymore. I'm working on democracy. If you get direct election of the president, if you deal with the problem of the Senate having disproportionate power and not representing people, but representing states, some states with no people in it, if you deal with gerrymandering, if you stop voter suppression, if you take money out of politics, all, like this sounds Pollyannish, but all our problems would be solved. Literally, Americans agree on climate overwhelmingly. They agree overwhelmingly on abortion, actually. They agree overwhelmingly on education and social justice. You'd solve these things if you could govern. And a lot of this is just the kind of structural problem in American democracy. QAnon apparently has more followers than some major religions I saw in the news last night. So we're in crazy town. Yeah. I mean, for those of us that do care about climate, and if democracy is fundamental to this, is now the time that we drop everything else and just focus on politics? Obviously, you have a career and an expertise that runs parallel to democracy. You know, I'm 30 years old right now and looking at what the next stretch of my career looks like. What are your thoughts for someone looking to get into a career around impact and where the levers with the most impact are to be pulled? Yeah, I mean, I think as an individual, you say, where's my power? I advise people to get a six pack, get some friends, sit down and say, where do I have power? And, you know, you have to think beyond my individual action, my business's individual impact. And it's into how do I be a citizen? How do I wield disproportionate power? Greta Thunberg is a great example of this. She's just a 17-year-old girl. She's wielding enormous power. 
but everyone's different. So for me, it's how do we use this famous, wealthy, pressworthy resort as a battle axe on policy? How do we influence people who visit here? How do we influence politicians? But for an average citizen, you know, it's almost trite or cliche to cite Ben Franklin's comment outside the Constitutional Convention when a woman said, what have you given us, Mr. Franklin? And he said, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. And we're failing widely to keep our republic. People don't even vote in the U.S., let alone participate in democracy like every town has a town council. And it's always like the worst of the worst who run for town council, like the dregs who have too much time in their hands. I can say that I was a town councilman. But you can be on the planning and zoning commission. And instead of voting down everything in your backyard that you don't like, you support things like affordable housing. When your elected official comes to town, you can do the hard work of showing up and confronting them in a polite and respectful way on climate. You can be part of a social movement by giving money and participating with groups like Protect Our Winters or 350.org. People are just like, they got America delivered to them after World War II, this perfect place with clean air and water and good policing and good laws. And we're like, oh, this is how it must be. No, you got to work at it, people. You got to work at democracy and you have to pay taxes. And it's hard work. It's what you should be doing as American citizens. Yeah, I completely agree. I'd like to switch for a second to some of the tactical work that you've been involved in. Your organization has filed briefs in support of Supreme Court cases. And I want to go back to the process of the Supreme Court on Massachusetts versus EPA. If you could walk through why it was important for you to file that brief, what that Supreme Court case meant, and where you see other opportunities for important decisions like that in the near future. Yeah. Yes. So to understand our approach to sustainability, we're Aspen and we're the center of conspicuous consumption and power and wealth. And one response to that would be, shut up, you hypocrites. And what we say is, we're powerful and wealthy. Do you want us in the fight or not? So what we do is two things. One is we use our wealth to model specific projects that can lead the country and the world because of who we are, we get so much press attention. So whether it's a coal mine methane capture project or fully electric buildings and hotels, we'll do these things and then we'll push the word out on them. Today in the Washington Post, there's a big feature on a project we did capturing methane from a coal mine. That's a perfect example because it's not us doing it doesn't matter, it's whether other people replicate it. So that's one thing we do. And then the other thing we do is we wield power. And the amicus brief we filed on Massachusetts versus EPA is an example of an attempt to wield power. Now, we're also very realistic about what our impact is. I don't think that the amicus brief mattered that much. It's true we were the only outdoor industry representative to file it. I doubt it influenced the case, but the vision is right. This is how we want to play ball. And the reason we intervened there, this was in 2007, we were asked to do it by our friends at the Natural Resources Defense Council. And Mass v. EPA is the most important law in the history of climate. It basically says that CO2 is a pollutant, just like 
sulfur dioxide or nitrogen oxides, traditional pollutants, and has to be regulated by the EPA. It's binding. It holds true today. All American climate policy is going to be based on Mass V EPA. So it's crucial. And we wanted to play on that. And and I think of that work more as like, this is how we ought to think. Now, can we apply this in different ways to other projects? Interesting. Back home in Colorado, you've continued this process of supporting policy and decisions that are impactful. And I want to jump over to XL Energy submitting a proposal to close coal-burning power plants and replace them with wind, solar, and natural gas. How were you involved in that process, I guess? And then what's been the outcome of that? Has it met the expectations? Yeah. So that's one example. But I'm going to give you a few examples of how we try to, to wield power and how we try to act at scale. That actually happened. Excel now has a clean power plan. They're closing coal plants. They're doing renewables. We won that one. But this is, so again, how, how should we think about these problems? So I'll give you a past example and some current examples. We were looking at the fact that we use a lot of energy and all businesses were doing was buying renewable energy certificates, which are credits for energy generation elsewhere. And we did it. We bought some. And then I looked into it and I was like, this is a joke. It's like a scam. It's not actually changing the emissions in the world. Well, what if we really cared about climate, what would we do? And the answer we came up with is we would change our utility, which is a conservative rural electric co-op. We'd change the board. So we dug in and we spent 15 years community organizing, finding candidates, helping them run campaigns, ending up with staff changes. And thanks to a coalition that was involved in this. We now have Holy Cross Energy. The CEO is a climate scientist. They've divested from a coal plant. They have a target of 100% renewable energy. Now, we don't get to claim we're 100% until 2030 when they get there. But when we do, we won't just be green, but the whole community, including our arch rival Vale, will be 100%. And the United States will have a model for how to do this transition. That's one example of how we approach this. Another example. This is a long story, but the very short version is we boycotted Kleenex because of how Kimberly Clark was practicing forestry. Because of who we are, that led to a conversation between our CEO and their CEO. Kimberly Clark's bigger than many countries in the world. We're just a rinky-dink ski resort, but we're having conversations saying, we're not using Kleenex at Aspen, And Kimberly Clark saying, we want you to use Kleenex because of who visits. So along with 700 other companies, that led to a change in how Kimberly Clark practices forestry, which is a major climate issue, obviously. So that's power wielding. And that's asymmetric warfare. That's what the military would call it. In the modern day, there's a climate law in Colorado that we're supporting. And we're in direct conversation with the governor and the governor's office. Mike, our CEO, knows the governor. I know the staff. And we're civil, but we're like, hey, this is leadership. We got to do it. And then as another example, Biden, Biden's interior department has put a pause on public lands drilling because one, that whole process is screwed up. You know, fossil fuel companies will lease the land for pennies on the dollar, and then they make a ton of money on it. And then 
they cause climate change and don't pay for that externality. So revisit that. Like at the worst, you should charge a ton more for the lease. And at best, you shouldn't lease it at all because the scientists tell us we can't extract more carbon and still meet Paris climate targets. So Biden files this pause. He gets opposed by the state of Wyoming and by energy trade groups. And we come in working with earth justice and public justice in support of Biden. So now he's got a ski industry, which is relevant in Wyoming, right? They have Jackson, they have a big ski industry saying, you can't do this, we support Biden. So we hope, yeah, we're Aspen. So it's like in Wyoming, we may not have a lot of traction, but we hope that we're a credible witness saying, we support this, we're business people, we're using more and more clean energy and we shouldn't extract these fossil fuels. Once you get a policy win or once you get a company on board with making changes, you've written in the past about the challenge of actually implementing those, even when there's agreement in value. So whether that's converting your equipment at Aspen to biodiesel or whether that's getting a builder to focus on building a sustainable structure, where have you seen the challenges in on-the-ground implementation of better business practices and what has worked in that process? Yeah. Well, the challenge of doing anything different is that the status quo is this freight train that's very hard to stop or turn. And status quo works, say, in buildings or hotels because, yeah, it might use more energy, but at least it's going to work. So when you do things that I've done, like you put in an early generation waterless urinal in a luxury hotel and it smells, that's bad. So the people who oppose change are not dumb. They just are trying to do their job. So that's the primary problem. But we encounter this all the time. So we're trying to build a hotel in Mammoth, California. We're trying to make it all electric. Electrification is a key climate solution because if we heated that hotel with natural gas, it's going to emit CO2 for its whole lifetime. But if you heat it with electricity, it's going to get greener every year until the grid becomes 100%. The grid in California is already 60% clean. So when we pitched this, the engineers basically said, you can't do it. The technology doesn't exist. It does exist. We just built a similar building here in Colorado. But these guys, you know, they're just doing their job. The engineer's job is to build the building in a way that they won't get in trouble if it doesn't work. So there's no incentive. In the end, what works is you got to change building codes. You got to change policy. We built green buildings, but then over time, communities changed their building codes so that it actually was hard to build even to code because the code was so energy efficient. That's where you want to get to. Snowmass Village, as an example, we built a hotel there. We were barely able to make it as efficient as the code requires. That's awesome. That's the way it should be. At the limelight snowmass, we ended up exceeding the code, but it's a great code. So that's that's the way things work. And then in terms of implementation within a business, without policy, the key is that you're not at war with your staff. You know, and initially I might have gone in and said, hey, we're doing this, right? We're being more efficient. But the real way to approach these problems is you go to the facilities guy, who in our case was a Marine who on Paris Island during training was the best shot of 
350 Marines. So this is the real deal. If I go in and talk to him, I say, Peter, what have you always wanted to do that would make this company save money and energy? And he'd say, oh, I've always wanted to, you know, retrofit the boiler in this hotel, but we've never had enough money. Okay, let me help you with that. So it requires a humility, a lack of arrogance, and a lack of kind of righteousness and a respect for people's place in the world in the sense that Peter may have uh, college expenses for his kids. Yeah, he has ideological differences. He's got healthcare challenges. He hasn't paid off his house. You have to assume people are good people, which they mostly are, though some people in ExxonMobil are not, as an example. Then you have to come to them as a human being and say, I want to work together. And that doesn't always happen. It's often command and control where the environmental community has a level of righteousness that turns people off. It feels like you're trying to balance the visionary leadership, which is what's needed to move us forward. But then to be able to do that in a way that's not arrogant, but brings people along. It's essentially what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, getting back to Ben, Ben Franklin had this list of virtues 13 of them, he tried to meet one virtue every week. And then he'd switch to the next virtue. And he was like, the hardest one I can't get is humility. You know, it's very difficult. I, I have not been kind of a model of humility in my life, but you have to aspire to it. And the more you do, like an example of what we've learned here is if we achieve something great, like we just did with an all electric building, and you dish off the credit as much as you can, literally, hey, instead of me talking about it, we'll have this person and the CFO will do the interview and you just dish it, dish it, dish it. It only elevates you, right? So if you're out for personal gain, the best way to gain personal gain is to dish off the credit to other people versus taking it yourself. Within an organization, in many ways, you're in a unique position in terms of the type of company you work for, the flexibility and support that you're getting. Often, people who care about sustainability, who are brought into these sustainability positions, are sidelined. They're not involved in decision-making. How have you watched that play out, and do you think that's changing at all? Well, I mean, I think that's what I've argued is the status quo right now. If you're a sustainability person, you're not involved in company policymaking. You don't have any real power. You don't talk to the CEO, and that has to change. And again, the companies that are leading are the ones where the CEO is the sustainability officer, basically. Mark Benioff or Larry Fink. Is it changing? I don't think it's changing yet. We have this unique situation where I've been privileged to be at the table. So I'm part of a 12-person senior management team. And when we do stuff, I'm there. And my perspective will get weighed even if we can't follow it. And in some cases, I am able to draw the line. I'm like, we just can't do this. I think even within our progressive company, there are forces of kind of conventionality that are actually pushing us back toward a kind of operational greening approach that is copacetic and everyone can love. Because the reality is the work that I do is highly controversial. You get in trouble, you make mistakes, and it sometimes puts the company in an awkward position. And in the end, that's very hard within a business community. In 2007, I think I was a subject of a Business Week cover story 
that was kind of blowing the whistle on the corporate sustainability movement. I got in severe trouble for that. And I was talking to a friend of mine who used to be the sustainability director at Patagonia. And he said, yeah, Auden, corporations want things to be happy, smiley face all the time. And you didn't do that. But I think there is this cracking in the system where a company like Patagonia deserves a lot of credit for saying, we don't care. We don't give a shit. We're going to do this. So they have tags on their on their clothing that says, vote the assholes out. And that was done, what's interesting is that was done by staff. It wasn't approved by the CEO. And they have a culture that allows that to happen. Well, they're doing great and they're highly respected. Yep, yep. I want to jump over to environmental solutions driven by economic arguments which is really dangerous because it sets the way that we talk about big issues. So the low-hanging fruit, light bulbs, low flow taps and toilets, et cetera, there is an economic argument for. But unless you are operating on a very long-term time horizon with a very robust definition of what economic health looks like, there are a lot of issues that we need to address that are at odds with profit which seems to be something that gets swept under the rug in the impact investing world and the CSR world. It's very easy to be like, well, the ROI looks great and that'll get people on board. But then we set the precedent of making economic arguments. And there are often things that don't fall into that. How do you think about that challenge? You know, it's a huge problem. And if you looked at the Obama administration's first four years talking about climate, they talked about national security and energy independence. And it got no traction at all. And then they started talking about climate as a moral issue. And so the short answer to your question is the way to get things done in society is by using morality. You can look at the power of that on, say, the abortion issue and the argument of anti-abortion people and the kind of intensity that brings to the conversation. I think the economic argument is dangerous because it only gets you so far. Like your retrofits will only get you 30% of your carbon reduction. At the same time, we have an economic system that just simply doesn't function as capitalism ought to in the sense that some things are free and some things are not free. There's no logic behind it. So it's free to pollute CO2, but you have to pay to throw your garbage out. A philosopher in the University of Tennessee, I think, did a study saying your average American's emissions are going to be responsible for one and a half deaths or something like that over your lifetime. Well, we should be ruthless and monetize that, right? If there's a cost to CO2 emissions, let's put that into the system and help it fix itself. It's not the only answer. There has to be a moral piece, but fixing the economics is a piece of it. I think Trump is an example of the power of a moral argument, right? Because Even if you don't agree with Trump, people felt he was making a religious and moral case. And that's the role of a president is to kind of bring values into the policy conversation. I think Biden, you know, you can criticize Biden for his past legislation and for not doing enough, but he's been really good about kind of addressing the human component of why we're making certain policy and making moral statements and not being scared of it. Remember, this was the guy who blurted out that gay marriage was fine 
before Obama did, and he got in trouble. And so that level of leadership has always been important in America. Yeah. On the topic of capitalism, something that has come under fire by the progressive left, I've heard you talk about moving away from a fossil fuel-based economy, but not necessarily capitalism. Do you see mechanisms for the type of functional capitalism that you just mentioned? It just feels like we're so far away from a true free market system, and we're so far away from being able to capture the externalities that are necessary to actually have a functional capitalism. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I guess my take is I agree with those people, right? Generally speaking, Naomi Klein and others who are arguing that capitalism is fundamentally broken. I agree. I'm not sure we can get rid of capitalism. I think we're stuck with it. But the role of government and regulation was to fix market failures in capitalism. So there's a role for regulation. And then there's a role for economic signals like a carbon tax. If we had a $200 a ton carbon tax, suddenly we'd be solving a lot of these problems. So I think you have to kind of achieve a level of capitalism that looks more, well, like what real capitalism would be and may look more socialistic. You know, Norway's a capitalist society and the U.S. is capitalist, but we have smart socialistic programs like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. So I think you have to work within the system. I'm actually a guy who consistently argues, don't work within the system. Like I want us to drop out of our trade group that is not doing anything on climate, but I'm losing that fight. But I think it's hard to drop out of capitalism realistically. I don't see how we do that in the next 50 years. I think we're stuck with that model. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, imagine two semi-plausible things and one unplausible. What if we eliminated subsidies for fossil fuels? It's in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Was that the plausible or implausible? <laughs> that to me seems plausible because <laughs> the, right, the right gets that. They don't like subsidies. Yep. And then a carbon tax, semi-plausible. But think about it. If you had an escalating carbon tax that didn't eliminate regulation, those two things would be a different society. Then what if you had publicly funded elections? Now that's implausible, I think. But what if you did? You're still in a capitalist system, but we'd actually be functional. Yep. Yep. As we look at these solutions, what's the role of academia in this process? I know that's a bit of a jump, but you've talked about the importance of the closest thing to an unbiased source in our society. How do you think about engaging with academia as a driver of new ideas and somewhat unbiased assessment of the state of affairs? So yeah, what's been fun about my career is that I've had a foot in academia. I write academic papers. Many of my colleagues, I will co-author things with them. They're professors at business schools. And I'm regularly at business schools talking to students. I think all these sustainable business people, they came from somewhere. The ones in the back room doing the carbon accounting and not driving change. And the people who taught them were the business schools. So there's this opportunity to change what we do. Now, here's a really gratifying story. I got a text message the other day from a student at DU Business School, and it was a screen grab of what the professors had up. And it was the Stanford Social Innovation Review article I wrote. And the caption was, should we change how we're teaching 
sustainable business. Wow, right? Because what I would say is your role is not to reduce the organization's impact. Your role is to use the organization as a tool for movement building and power wielding. If business schools start changing how they teach, because right now they're teaching to the conventional logic, suddenly we have this group of weaponized graduates who aren't going to accept the carbon accounting job. Maybe they'll be unemployed, but then they'll be part of the movement. (laughs) I had a conversation with Rick Ridgway over at Patagonia on this topic, and I was asking, where is the power of youth? And he similarly felt like right now, talent is not necessarily being fully weaponized, as you would say, or being primed to drive the change that it can. But if you can get more and more young people to A, be taught in the way that you're talking about, but B, recognize their power, there's a lot of influence to be had by an entire generation of talented young people saying, I'm not going to work for this company. Here's what we need to do for you to hire me, et cetera. Yeah. I think a lot of what I see is this inclination to worry about process and getting your annual review done and your reporting over mission. You're always being pulled back into, you know, management, strategic planning and whatever. And talent, I think, does get stifled. So it's the organizations that allow, like Patagonia is a great example. They allow people to flourish. I think we do as well. And then the bigger you get and the more publicly owned you get, the harder it is. Yep. Yep. Well, any last thoughts, anything else that we didn't cover that you feel is important? Uh, No, I would say that this conversation ought to be what's going on in the heads of sustainable business practitioners on a daily basis. And if you disagree, then ask, if I really cared about climate change in my role in business or wherever, what would I be doing? Well, that seems like a great ending point to me. I'm really grateful that you took the time to share this with us. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks for having me and good luck with this podcast as it goes forward.